ไทย I'd like to begin with some verses from Psalm 129, 139, rather, this morning, the opening verses of that psalm. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thoughts far off. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down, and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before, and laid thine, thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is too high, I cannot attain to it. <clears throat> and then from our confession, the second chapter, the first paragraph, there is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Daryl Hart, <coughs> H-A-R-T, finished up his Ph.D. work in 1988 at Johns Hopkins University. Interestingly, the university from which J. Gresham Machen had graduated. Dr. Hart wrote his dissertation <coughs> and gave it this title, An Intellectual Biography of J. Gresham Machen. His conclusion is this. Machen's legacy is virtually what appeared in the OPC and at Westminster Theological Seminary in the late 30s and throughout the 40s after Machen's death. Dr. Hart's conclusion is this. Machen's legacy is virtually what appeared in the OPC and at Westminster Theological Seminary in the late 30s and throughout the 40s after Machen's death. 
Now we can go on from that thesis and state, as Dr. Hart implies, the efforts, therefore, of fundamentalists like Carl McIntyre and the evangelicals to claim nation as their own does not fit the record. The efforts of fundamentalists like Carl McIntyre and evangelicals to claim nation as their own simply does not fit the record. Now we can add to Dr. Hart's insights what we have learned thus far in these lectures. On the one hand, Machen remains a constant figure, a stable individual, dedicated to the Reformed faith and Presbyterianism as they are generally conceived and as they are expressed in the American Presbyterian tradition. That on the one hand. On the other hand, Machen is obviously a man in transition in whom we are able to see a deepening zeal for the particulars of the Reformed faith and for a Presbyterianism that carry him beyond any mere American expression of his commitment. On the one hand, a stable figure. On the other hand, a man in transition in whom we can see movement. Now, because of this, and because of what Dr. Hart has placed before us, we are able to understand things a little better as we survey the late 30s and the 40s, as far as the OPC is concerned. Many throughout the latter years of the 30s and throughout the 40s become alarmed when after having bound themselves to Machen and to his movement they find both he and it to be quite different than what they had expected. Now what had they expected? <clears throat> I'll give you a composite testimony here, taken from bits and pieces picked up from various witnesses. What they had expected was this, a fast-growing, fundamentalistically sympathetic, broadly evangelical, American Presbyterian Church with easy access to the culture 
and a toleration for some views at variance with the Westminster Standard. Get all that? That was the expectation of many who had attached themselves to Machen and his movement. Not that all who dissented would identify with each one of these features. Nevertheless, in sewing together the various aspirations, this is what we come up with. And in this composite, we hear the echo of voices like that of Carl McIntyre, J. Oliver Buswell, Alan McRae, H. McAllister Griffith, Edwin Ryan, Robert Strong, Floyd Hamilton, and others. Now that's an impressive list. Those names are not names to be sneezed at. But we want to ask ourselves what accounts for the radical disjunction between these men and their expectations and the direction that the church takes. What accounts for the radical disjunction? We've already spoken about their estimation of things, what they hope for. We have already spoken about some of their preliminary judgments. Recall what we said yesterday. For instance, Machen, the seminary, and the church in their estimation, had come under the influence of, quote, a small alien group without Presbyterian background, unquote. Those are the words of Alan McRae. Or, as Floyd Hamilton expressed it in 1947, the OPC had come under the thumb of, quote, the traditions of churches holding to the Reformed faith in other lands. In other lands. Now add to this what we've seen concerning Machen's disenfranchisement. Note once more the significance of Machen's defrocking. He was effectively put out of the church, but also he was put out of the culture of which that church was an integral part. In effect, Machen became a genuine biblical counter-cultural figure. Truly a man who in every respect was on the outside looking in. 
there were many who frankly did not want to be where Machen ended up. But now, without Machen around to say nay, he having died, some of these individuals merely blamed others while claiming Machen as their own. There were some who merely awakened much later to the position in which Machen had left them. And when they did, they left him and his movement behind. But having marked out these reasons for the radical disjunction between the OPC and those who then took exception to its direction, have we pressed far enough? Have we penetrated deeply enough? It was February 1921. We're backing up a bit. February 1921, shortly before his death, that B.B. Warfield made his famous statement to J. Gresson Machen, who had come to visit him. Machen asked Warfield if there was hope for the PCUSA by splitting it. To which Warfield replied, you can't split rotten wood. You can't split rotten wood. This was Warfield. <laughs> this was Warfield speaking about American Presbyterianism. The American Presbyterian Church, rotten wood? Well, actually, she proved rotten in ways Warfield didn't expect. In fact, in some ways, that incriminated him. And one way in particular that was perceived and then battled by the man who became the OPC's man of the hour. Machen having died, who took center stage? Cornelius Van Til. Now, in order to understand Van Til's significance, note I didn't say to understand Van Til. <laughs> You may all be aware of the joke that was told on Van Til on one occasion. Someone was introducing him, 
and started out by saying, now there are only eight people in the world who understand Albert Einstein, but there's no one that understands Van Til. <laughs> in order to understand Van Til's significance for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, it is important to lay a little groundwork. Now hang with me through this, will you? Henry Steele Commager. He's not an Orthodox Presbyterian. He wrote an important book in 1977 entitled The Empire of Reason. His thesis is simple. The enlightenment of the 18th century with its exaltation of human autonomy, you know what I mean when I speak of autonomy. Lawn to yourself. Human autonomy and reason. The enlightenment of the 18th century with its exaltation of human autonomy and reason did not fare as well in Europe as has been thought. Actually faltering in Europe, the enlightenment crossed the Atlantic and found a home in the developing colonies. Now we might not buy all of Commager's thesis, at least that part about the enlightenment faltering in Europe. However, he does make a good case for the flourishing of the Enlightenment in this country in its early days. Terry Eastland, 1981, adds weight to this thesis in his essay In Defense of Religious America, written for Commentary magazine. What has triumphed, so says Eastland, is an enlightened Protestantism as the religion of the realm. An enlightened Protestantism as the religion of American public life. And with this triumph, there now reigns a general, nondescript deity, one that loves virtue, patriotism, and hard work, one who judges traitors and sluggards. This God is the God of American civil religion. Now moving a bit further, Mark Knoll, in a 1987 essay, carries this analysis a bit further. He sets out to investigate the influences upon James Madison and concludes that one of the greatest influences upon Madison was Madison's teacher, John Witherspoon, president of the College of New Jersey, which would eventually become, of course, Princeton University. Witherspoon was a Scot, a Presbyterian clergyman, 
who emerged quite the spokesman, according to Knoll, for an Enlightenment version of public religion. His roots were in the common sense philosophy of the Scottish realists, but in the end, his view of man in so many ways was indistinguishable from the Enlightenment ideal. Man could, with his mind, unaided by revelation, determine truth, determine truth, and progress in that truth for the sake of the for the betterment for the sake of the betterment of society. Man, in his fallenness, was short-changed. At best, at worst, he was forgotten as Witherspoon moved from church to public square. The development of American Presbyterianism from Witherspoon on, therefore, becomes suspect in its formulations. In addition to its establishmentarian character, about which we have already spoken, there was an infection contracted through exposure to the Enlightenment and Presbyterianism, even the Presbyterianism of Princeton, fell prey to the exaltation of human autonomy and reason. Enter Van Til. Do you understand the significance of the man? Enter Van Til. Now, admittedly, Van Til is hard to understand in his formulations, in his position, but please be clear about his significance. He will be the one who stands uncompromisingly against the Enlightenment influences within Presbyterianism in this country. The old church won't do. The new church cannot merely be a continuation of the old. We can't have a mere repristination of things. Now, as I said, and as you know, Van Til is hard to understand. But one of the best short summaries is found in here. <laughs> so if you don't have a copy, it is written by Robert Churchill. And he does much better than I, so I'm going to read what he has to say. The central figure at Westminster regarding the defense of the faith was Dr. Cornelius Van Til. And I'm quoting from page 53 for those of you who want to note that. 
In his method of apologetics, Dr. Van Til applied the largeness of the perspective of Reformed Christianity to the philosophical and epistemological questions of our day. Epistemology, the theory of knowledge. Theory of knowledge. For Van Til, the Christian faith, based as it is on the Word of God, was the only acceptable framework for reasoning correctly about the world. Thus, Van Til's system of apologetics restated the doctrine of the sovereignty of God as it relates to the entire scope of human thought. Van Til, thought, Van Til taught that Christians must begin to develop a philosophy of God and the world based upon the triune God of the Scriptures. One cannot begin with the idea that man is the measure of truth or on some neutral ground, such as the principles of reason, and argue his way back to God. Such an approach begins by denying the very thing it seeks to affirm. If Christians are to be true to God's revelation, they must begin by accepting the Bible's description of who God is and who man is in relation to him. According to the scriptures, God is the self-existent, omnipotent, omniscient creator. He knows all things fully. Nothing can be added to or subtracted from God's knowledge. In the classroom, Van Til would depict the fullness of God's understanding by drawing a large circle on the blackboard. Big one. <laughs> Man, on the other hand, is not self-existent and self-sufficient like God. He is a created and finite being. However, the Bible teaches that God created man in his own image, and this makes man distinct from the other creatures in the world. In particular, man alone can think and reason after the pattern of God and in a way analogous to him. Van Til would further diagram it this way, put the little circle and man underneath God. According to Van Til, man reasons properly only when he patterns his understanding of the world after God's understanding as revealed in the Bible, or as he thinks God's thoughts after him. That is why any attempt at developing a Christian philosophy by beginning with man or the principles of reason instead of with God is ultimately self-defeating. Once man excludes God from the picture, he is already guilty of faulty reasoning, for no fact in the universe can be fully or rightly understood except as that fact is related to God. To attempt to understand the world and ourselves without reference to God is the foundation of all apostate thinking. Thus we find also in Van Til a relentless application of the biblical doctrine of sin in the area of thought itself. Here is another voice crying in the wilderness, repent, this time in the fields of philosophy and science. Van Til insisted that man can properly know and understand God, the world and himself, only in the light of the divine revelation given in the Bible. Amen. Now, is it, is it not obvious to us 
from this quote just how completely then to set himself against the Enlightenment ideal. Wherever he found it, even if he found it in Old Princeton, even if he found it in the Presbyterian Church as it expressed itself in America. Van Til then prosecuted his case within the OPC throughout his lifetime, but specifically in the events of the 40s in the decisive conflict of the 40s made up of three separate episodes. Now you can turn to your outline <laughs> in your brochure. How's that for a long introduction? <laughs> now I don't intend to give you a thorough and comprehensive analysis of these episodes. I'm going to mention them and try to relate them then to Van Til's importance. <clears throat> the first episode was the battle over the Committee of Nine. That's the Committee of Nine, not the Committee of Seven. The committee of Nine. That committee had been erected by the 8th General Assembly in 1941 by the following motion. Now, it's a long one, but listen carefully. Typical, yes, right. That a committee of nine, six ministers and three elders be elected by the General Assembly to study the relationship of the OPC to society in general and to other ecclesiastical bodies in particular with a view to bringing into the next General Assembly recommendations suggesting ways and means whereby the message and methods of our church may be better implemented to meet the needs of this generation and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church may have an increasing area of influence and make a greater impact on life today. <clears throat> there it is. Now, those who were elected to that committee, and it was quite an election, from what I'm told, uh, it took six ballots to get a full slate. And Van Til was not elected until the fifth ballot, interestingly. <clears throat> the members were ministers Ed Ryan, R.B. Kuyper, Bob Strong, Burton Goddard, Cornelius Van Til, and Clifford Smith. The elders were Gordon Clark, uh, elder from South Jersey, elder, ruling elder Freitag, and uh, Murray Forrest Thompson. According to Lawrence Ayers, man known to this presbytery, the spirit behind this motion for the Committee of Nine was the spirit of Ed Ryan who had hopes of the OPC becoming the PCUSA all over again. Seven members of the committee were virtually unanimous 
about the direction they wanted to take. Two dissented. The elder, Murray Forrest Thompson, and of course, Dr. Van Til. Now the issue was much more complex than the public issue of whether the Committee of Nine would be a super committee. That's basically where the debate was waged. But the issue is more complex than the public issue of whether the Committee of Nine would be a super committee and literally legislate church policy at the expense of local Presbyterian General Assembly and General Assembly Committee authority. In actual fact, the point was whether the OPC was going to be a continuation of the American Presbyterian tradition, in effect unchanged, a church that carried within its breast a fatal compromise with the culture that had been deeply influenced by the, by the Enlightenment ideals. The next episode came in the years 1944 through 1947. This is the so-called Clark Controversy. It erupted over the figure of Gordon H. Clark, a remarkably able man, a dignified defender of the American Presbyterian tradition. Somehow this tradition in its pristine form, according to Clark, had remained immune to the influences of the Enlightenment, and this despite the fact that it, at least in Clark's estimation of it, supported the notion of the primacy of the intellect. Clark's position was destructive of the principle of analogy that we've already read about. God, according to Clark, was incomprehensible because he infinitely knows an infinite number of propositions. A mere quantitative difference separates God's knowledge from man's knowledge. Van Til and others reacted to what Clark held. God is incomprehensible, they said, in the sense that he knows infinitely more than man, but also qualitatively his knowledge is of a different kind, man's knowledge being analogous, similar but not the same. But once again, in this struggle, the battle was over much more than a fine point of theology. I recommend to you the essay by Michael Hackenberg in the volume Pressing Toward the Mark. It is a very fine essay. And according to Hackenberg's analysis, the question was whether the OPC would maintain a course that moved it consistently away from the unfortunate features of American Presbyterianism and toward a more consistently reformed and antithetical identity. The final episode was the 1947 battle over the figure of Floyd Hamilton. Again, a very able man, 
a dignified defender of the American Presbyterian tradition. In fact, a general secretary of the Committee on Christian Education in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Floyd Hamilton, however, was an ardent Clark supporter, and the issue arose around him because there were those in Korea who wished him to come to Korea and teach there at a theological seminary, and they wanted our Committee on Foreign Missions to send him. Many of those who had favored the majority position of the Committee of Nine, many of those who had backed Gordon Clark, now placed all their eggs in the basket of Hamilton's appointment to that position. As a result, because of the proposal that was put before the assembly, two entirely different slates were presented to the assembly representative of the respective parties with, res with respect to uh, the respective parties and their estimation of uh, Hamilton's uh, uh, worthiness to be sent out under the Foreign Missions Committee. The Hamilton party lost by one vote. The slate that favored him was voted down by one vote. And after this defeat, much of the American Presbyterian constituency, those who aspired that the Orthodox Presbyterian Church pursue a course consistent with that identity departed. And the OP's distinctive identity was confirmed. Her direction set. <clears throat> I will say it again. The OPC is a Presbyterian anomaly. She doesn't fit the pattern. But I think that as we reflect upon the events of the 40s, it is important for us to say more now. Although she is a Presbyterian anomaly, and she is unique, We have no excuse to allow her uniqueness or the events of the 40s to become reason to sneer smugly at the world and the church because that world and the church are enmeshed in attitudes that have arisen out of the Enlightenment ideal. We must be energetic in putting forth the case of the gospel and the claims of Christ. We can be no less energetic than the man of the hour, Van Til, was himself. 
we must present that antithetical message, that gospel of saving grace, knowing that it only, by the operations of our sovereign God, is capable of tearing down those formidable barriers of culture and ideology that keep people from Christ. So let the triumph of the forties be no call to smugness or indolence. And let the decisions of the forties be no excuse for lovelessness. We go into the world, the ambassadors of the one who went into the world lovingly. We must love as he loved, in hopes of and with confidence of the fact that our God will use us to save some. Let's pray. Hear us, our God, for the sake of your great name. Judge our pride. Judge our laziness. Do bless us by your Spirit that we might be energetic in pursuing the course of the gospel and the gospel's cause in a way that pleases our Savior. May we learn well from those who have taught us. May we learn not to back down an inch, but may we also learn to love. And may we learn, our God, how to love one another, that we might stand unitedly before a world that needs the message of salvation and that desperately. Amen.